And for those who are familiar and have been close to, to Yusa, uh, you, know, you know that without William Prusak, who was professor here at Yale for over 50 years, that Yusa wouldn't have existed. And um, when I first had the idea uh, six or so years ago to start a, a research center on anti-Semitism, Alon, who was uh, very close to Bill, uh, introduced me to him. And uh, I had this crazy idea. It was ill-prepared and ill-thought-out. But um, Alon brought me to the medical school to meet Bill. Um, and I was extraordinarily nervous to meet a Yale professor. I was out of the Ivy Leagues for a long time. And I read a little bit about Bill's work. Bill was a pioneer in, in fighting HIV and created medication for viral infections and the like. I hope I'm speaking clear. He's a scientist, I don't know, the language of science. Um, and I, I, I showed up at the meeting very nervous with all these notes and proposals and uh, strategic plans. And I started talking to him, and very shortly afterwards, I was at ease. Uh, for those of you who, who knew Bill, he was a very humble and kind and happy person, and uh, he soon made me feel at ease. And to make a long story short, he was the first person to really take the idea sort of under his wing, and he helped fund uh, this nonprofit organization, which I incorporated and created, which was called ISGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. And with Bill's seed money, to make a long story short, we sort of brought it to Yale under his guidance and constant support and encouragement. And as a small <coughs> of gratitude, we had a lecture we used to invite the most prestigious uh, speaker of the year to have the William Prusov lecture. And it was a small way of honoring him uh, for his support and his, more than just his support, his kindness and his encouragement. Um, and sadly, uh, Bill passed away a little while ago. And just as a small token on uh, our appreciation at ESA, um, we prepared a plaque that we'd like to give to the Prusov family who came here very kindly to be with us today. I uh, appreciate it. And it's just, uh, just to say thank you uh, to you and your support and to your father's support and grandfather's support. Um, and it was really just as a, a note, I, I don't have the words and I can go on speaking for a long time, but you know, he was really an inspiration and a, um, an example of what a human being should be. And just his presence uh, reminded me, I think, of my humanity and, and the deeds, the good deeds we ought to be doing here on this uh, planet, just by being in his presence and knowing him. So, small token, maybe a long one, give it to the family. <laughs> Semitisms with an S from Islamism to the acquiescence of the West. And the reason why I use the term anti-Semitisms with an S is because I will argue that there's different forms of anti-Semitism historically, culturally, and even geographically. So the contemporary anti-Semitism 
in the United States is different than the contemporary anti-Semitism, for example, in Egypt, which is different than in, in European countries, in Africa, South America, there's variations. And certainly, over time, there's been variations of anti-Semitism, which I'll touch on. And in a sense, what I'm going to try to do today is to place into context contemporary notions of globalization and how globalization, neoliberal globalization, is contributing to cleavages in society, the marginalization of uh, various groups, economically, socially, uh, culturally, and how this is impacting on contemporary anti-Semitism. Um, and, okay, before I start dealing with globalization, I just want to start off with notions of multiculturalism. This is sort of my area of research. And I think multiculturalism, and the study of multiculturalism, is a very important terrain to understand um, contemporary societies in the age of globalization. And it's also very important to understand, I would argue, what's at risk today in terms of anti-Semitism and anti-democratic uh, movements, if you will, social movements, and sort of what's at stake as these conflicts that we're reading about in the news seems to be speeding up. So first of all, the work of multiculturalism uh, in the social sciences is relatively a new area of study. It really started in the 1960s and 1970s. The Canadian political context was perhaps the place where the study of multiculturalism and the, the model of multiculturalism as a social cultural model emerged. So people like Charles Taylor, Will Kimlicka, Michael Walter in the United States, we're at the forefront of discussing issues of multiculturalism. And basically, what I will argue, and what they argued, is that multiculturalism is based on the recognition of the other. And the other is constructed in societies in various ways. And the recognition of the, of the other through the policies of multiculturalism, and there's various forms of multicultural policies and ideological perspectives, but essentially it's about recognizing the other. And once the other is recognized to develop mechanisms in society to integrate uh, groups that are migrating into, into social democracies, like Canada and other Western societies, and to integrate them economically, socially, and culturally through policies. Now, philosophically, the recognition of the other is essential. And a lot of the work of Taylor and Walzer and others who, who worked in the area of multiculturalism owe a debt of gratitude philosophically to people like Emmanuel Levinas. Emmanuel Levinas, who was a survivor from the Holocaust, his family perished in Lithuania. He was spared living in France. And his whole, uh, I guess, life's work, in a sense, was to bring notions of ethics, and uh, particularly the ethics, but also morality, into Western or Occidental uh, the philosophical canon. Emmanuel Levinas was steeped in Jewish uh, thought and ethics, and he's, he took, borrowed, if you will, from the Torah and the Talmud and the Jewish uh, canon of thought and integrated it into the academy. And he, he is well known for his work on ethics and recognizing the other. Now, Levinas argued that without the rec recognition of the other, then we are in serious trouble. If one doesn't recognize the other, if the society doesn't recognize the other, that this leads to complete marginalization, it can lead to forms of enslavement, and even to forms of genocide. 
and that society needs to be governed by a policy of social justice and the recognition of the other, and without this, there'll be tremendous conflict. In fact, Emmanuel Levinas said that he wrote very eloquently about recognizing the other. When you look into the face of another, this is when you see yourself, and this is the moment you become human, at, at the moment of recognizing your face or yourself in the face of the other. Um, so this is very important for social relations and societal relations on the individual level and on a collective level. So the, the body of literature is about recognition of the other. And without the recognition of the other, there can be no social, economic, and cultural integration. And if a social movement, such as the one that I will argue that's emerging powerfully in the Middle East, does not recognize the other, that this is the recipe for a disaster. And that if there is no recognition of the other notions of peace, um, peace treaties, compromises cannot exist. Because if, if a social movement is diametrically opposed to the recognition of the other, there can be no peace if there's no recognition. So from a philosophical level to a political level, I will argue that this has uh, profound implications. So during the last several decades, now talking about globalization, Issues such as nationalism and new forms of identity politics have exacerbating existing social, economic, and political cleavages. Among the combined causes of, the, of this emerging crisis are the extension of global competitive markets and the related effects from structural adjustment. Structural adjustment was a form of neoliberal policies that were pushed upon various societies through the free trade agreement in North America and certainly through developing countries if they wanted to become members and recognized uh, by international organizations like the World Bank and the IMF and the G7, as it was in those days, societies or, or states had to go through a period of structural adjustment. In other words, limiting the interference of the state into the lives of uh, citizens, into the marketplace, and allowing the free market uh, competition to emerge. So globalization, uh, we, I guess commonly know about globalization in terms of the Thatcher-Reagan era that was um, pushing this form of neoliberalism. So structural adjustment, the intensification of socioeconomic inequalities, the blurring of international and domestic, domestic political conflicts, and the worldwide escalation of adversarial identity politics. This relates directly to issues of national identity, notions of otherness, and even citizenship. In the era of of globalization, the shift from nation-state to transnational financial institutions, the creation of supranational political institutions, and the transformation from the national state to more local political entities have had a profound effect. Political and economic administration, significant um, socioeconomic and spatial and dem demographic changes are becoming apparent. We are beginning to witness societies and cities as shared spaces of different levels of citizenship and peoples with contradictory destinies. New emerging identities within globalization processes and relations are caught everywhere in the contradictory logic of globalization and localization. Symbolizing the acceleration and the momentum of globalization are, on the one hand, glossy facades of mega-capital, multinational corporations, transnational banks, world trade centers and five-star hotels, which were once the exclusive hallmarks of a small number of world cities, now signify the integration of almost every major metropole into global capitalism. The extension 
of information technologies and travel possibilities have created a new network of global spaces within the intersees of metropolitan life across continents inhabited by a growing cadre of transnational professionals and specialists. From the optics of this high-rise corporate economy and corporate, special, corporate culture, the city down below appears to be inhabited by swirling masses of immigrant populations competing for low-wage jobs in an increasingly informalized economy as a state retreats from its welfare functions. The combined economic and political imperatives of globalization seem to be sweeping away particularities of a time and place to generate common outcomes everywhere, while growing ethnic, racial, and cultural heterogeneity coupled with social and spatial polarization. Subsequently, this has led to a recent assessment of notions of cultural hybrid, hybridity on the one hand and essentialized identities on the other hand. So we're creating at the same time, we can see the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, which I will speak about later, which has a very essentialized identity. And those in the West and the urban uh, centers, we speak of hybrid identities, of people coming together as never before and mixing and so on. It is this schism on a worldwide scale that is perhaps at the center of a structural shift associated with globalization. That is the space and source of new emergent contemporary forms of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism as one example of a conflict. These manifestations of Judeophobia also draw upon historic tendencies. The implications on contemporary anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, or as I would prefer to call it, Israel bashing, and the future of the state of Israel, the diaspora communities, the diaspora Jewish communities, is at the center of the work that I'm doing. It is the contention and premise of my paper that neoliberal driven processes and policies associated with globalization are the most important driving force impacting on the economy, political, social, and cultural marginalization throughout the world, and creating the condition that is largely responsible for the reemergence contemporary anti-Semitism. It is the new manifestation of this longest hatred in a new form and context that threatens the security of the Jewish people, of the state of Israel, and I will argue even for basic notions of democracy and social justice. So in a sense, we are creating, we are in a situation, I would say globally, that at one level, to me, is reminiscent, uh, this is not an exact comparison, from an academic perspective or scholarly perspective, but there are similarities, I would argue, to the breakdown of the European economy and sort of social and economic and political context during the interwar period to what's happening now on a global scale. So you have the marginalization of masses of people, the breakdown in economic structures, uh, notions of hope, economic hope and, and success are diminished by more and more people, and you have a concentration of power and wealth in, in other places. So globalization, I will argue, creates marginalization and dislocation on a massive scale at the political, socioeconomic, and cultural levels. This displacement is built upon a compound by socioeconomic and political structures and their inequalities that were created throughout much of the world during the colonial and post-colonial contextualities. The dislocation of large populations is reaching a crisis level throughout much of the world. Subsequently, there has been an increase in adversarial identity politics. This is particularly true in the environment 
of, in which the post-World War II, II national, socioeconomic, and political institutions are being dismantled and even removed from the reach of citizens due to a, a strict adherence to the neoliberal ideology. Consequently, notions of citizenship are being diluted as the state, state subsidized education, medicine, food are no longer available to more and more citizens. Culture is becoming the last terrain in which people are struggling for, for some sense of self-determination and notions of enfranchisement or control of their destinies. This in the wake of the uninvited, and the unavoided consequences of neoliberal policies are often adopted by developing nations as the result of pressure from government and international institutions, mainly by the West. It is in this environment that Israel, the most important aspect of contemporary Jewish identity or the Jewish narrative, and Jews themselves have become the object of much of the scapegoating and the hateful rhetoric. At a moment, uh, at a more structural and socioeconomic level, the old ideologies and tendencies of anti-Semitism have re-emerged and are being fused with an anti-Zionism or a bashing or delegitimization of Israel. Old, old theological and racist notions of anti-Semitism, forms of European anti-Semitism, are being amalgamated with the anti-Jewish and anti-Zionist pronouncements of much of the radical elements, at the very least, in the Muslim world, particularly in the Middle East. Contemporary socioeconomic and political factors are being fused with historical tendencies. These new structural realities within the realm of international re relations of the emergence of an anti-Israel propensity appear to pose a significant threat to Israel. And I'd just like to say that Hegel himself and his writings argue that once culture becomes the vestige of uh, struggle, that once the struggle is taking place on a, on a cultural level, this inherently becomes the terrain of a reactionary social movement. That once the struggle is no longer about socioeconomic and political integration, but about cultural and cultural identity, that this inherently will become reactionary. At the most general level, it's possible to think about globalization in terms of movement and circulation, a complexity of crisscrossing flows some of it capital and trade, some of it people, signs, symbols, meanings, and myths. A common thread which runs through the existing body of literature is the idea that such flows and mobility across space have accelerated or gained new momentum in the contemporary era. And cap this, this is captured by such key phrases as time-space compression. So it's David Harvey, Harvey and Zygmunt Bowman, and others. So time-space uh, compression, time-space destination, intersecting spaces, and intersecting spaces. Therefore, the concept of globalization does not simply imply a shift from one period to another of historical rupture, as other encompassing terms frequently used to describe the contemporary metropolitan experience, namely post-Fordism or post-modernity. Rather, it denotes the intensification and stretching out of movements and flows has captured, for instance, in Anthony Giddens' definition of globalization as the intensification of worldwide social relations which link localities in such a way that the local happenings are shaped by events many miles away and vice versa. Globalization also affects notions of power and the differing relationship of distinct social groups to the flows of movement mentioned above. For example, it refers to 
And Amasti refers to the notion of power geometry of globalization. Some social groups initiate flows and movement, while others are on the receiving end of it, and some are effectively imprisoned by it. There is thus a dimension of ways in which different social groups are inserted into and seize upon the flows which are themselves differentiated and can reflect and reinforce existing, uh, existing power relations and, and it, it can also undermine them. Inherent to the popular image of globalization and the promise and its promise of a better future is the ability to transgress boundaries between nation states, racial, ethnic, and gender groups, and the public and private spheres. At one level, there's a fear that this could result in an increasing orderless world in which boundaries and groups' identities risk losing their meaning. However, to a significant extent, borders have, been, have become the locus of struggles among a variety of actors and interests mobilized to reassert or redefine the boundaries and identities vis-a-vis -vis other actors and interests, real or perceived. Globalization affects group identity in a profound manner. In fact, it results in contradictory notions of identity simultaneously, resulting in notions of hybridity, the particularization, or the essentialization of other identities. Bowman provides important analysis utilizing, utilizing the term time-space compression. This encapsulates the growing multifaceted transformation of the parameters of the human condition. Once social causes and outcomes of the compression are examined, it becomes evident that globalizing processes lack the commonly assumed unity of effect. Globalization, therefore, divides as much as it unites. Along with the emerging planetary dimensions of business, finance, trade, and information flow, a localizing, space-fixing set, space process is set in motion. Between them, the closely interconnected processes sharply differentiate the exist existential condition of ent entire populations and of various segments of each of the populations themselves. What appears as globalization for some means localization for others. Signaling a new freedom for some upon many others, it descends an uninvited and even cruel fate. Some of us become fully and truly global, some of us are fixed in our localities. And just as an example, Yale being in New Haven as a city, New Haven, the disparities are striking. And perhaps New Haven in itself represents uh, a global city. So Yale, many of us at Yale come from many places, many across the United States, across the world. Scholars at Yale trans, uh, tra travel regularly throughout the world, they have contacts throughout the world, colleagues throughout the world, projects. So Yale is really a global institution, a global entity. And at the same time, meeting people in New Haven who are in communities less than a mile from here, when you speak to people, which many of us don't hear because of the sort of spatial, economic, social, and cultural segregation, you, it, it's shocking at, at one level to realize that people the thought, for example, of traveling to Manhattan is beyond some people's imagination. Right? So people are stuck in their localities. And, and this is an example, a very powerful example, if you will, of globalization. Some are fixed, some don't leave uh, ghettos or uh, disenfranchised cities or, or parts of cities, while others are communicating, traveling, 
literally on a global level. Being local in a globalized world is a sign of deprivation and degradation. An integral part of, of the globalizing process, sorry, an integral part of the globalizing process is progressive spatial segregation, separation, and exclusion. Neo-tribal and fundamentalist tendencies which reflect and articulate the experience of people on the receiving end of globalization are as much a legitimate reaction to globalization as the widely acclaimed hybridization or of top culture, the culture of the globalized top. There is a breakdown in communication between the globalized elites and, and the ever more localized rest. In short, international funding agencies press for minimization of state integration, intervention in domestic economy and social services, hence leaving it to the private sector. The macroeconomic consequences imposing Western neoliberal ideology to the third world, or the so-called developing world, are ambiguous at best. The social outcomes are often drops in the standard of living of the poor and the peasantry, and a widening gap between the upper and lower, and sometimes even the middle and social, middle social classes. One consequence of the implementation of these adjustment policies is the increase of social unrest, urban-rural riots, and violence, counter-oppressive measures of the authorities. So, in other words, the, for, after the era of the Second World War, many societies, particularly in the West, developed roughly Keynesian models of social democracy, where the state would intervene in the social services of its citizens. This, I would argue, the Marshall Plan and the intervention, intervention in the um, largely destroyed economies of, of Europe after the Second World War played a very important role in saving the capitalist uh, economy, if you will. But it also, in a sense, through nationalization and state subsidies, provided basic health care, education, and the like, housing in some cases, to large sectors of the, of the population. Growing up in Canada, for example, I often tell the story in the 1980s, uh, up until the 1980s, from the Second World War to the 1980s, education in Canada and healthcare in Canada was readily available to all of its citizens. I went to McGill University and my undergraduate degree, and through state intervention, I was paying less than 200 American dollars a year for school, unlike the Ivy League private uh, institutions in the United States, and certainly now in the contemporary context where it's, it's uh, extraordinarily expensive to come to a good school. Healthcare in Quebec, especially where I grew up, was uh, something that all the citizens of Quebec, regardless of our uh, ethnic or racial or linguistic identities, took pride in. So on the one hand, the social services <coughs> provided by the state also, I would argue, in Europe, Canada, and other societies as well, even in so-called developing countries, played an important role of maintaining social co cohesion. All citizens had a stake in the future of the society. In some developing countries, for example, like Egypt and, and other countries, the state wasn't as uh, wealthy and perhaps it was also more corrupt than in other societies, as an example. But the state also provided subsidies for basic education, uh, food subsidies for the basic um, uh, ingredients of uh, you know flour, sugar, that sort of thing. There was state subsidies for that for poorer people. And in the in the post-colonial or the decolonial era, 
the state, the, the modern nation state, also represented a, in, in a large part, uh, a promise of a better future. So the state, even in, in so-called third world countries, also created some sort of social cohesion as people saw the state apparatus as potentially uh, bringing in an era or creating a, a future that would be better than the, the time that people were in now. So it gives some people hope. What's interesting in the, to me in terms of globalization, particularly in the Middle East, that you have the sort of neoliberal Western notions of economic development that see the state as an impediment towards economic uh, development and freedom. And you also have, in a sense, the, the emergence of radical Islam. When I speak about radical Islam, I'm not speaking about Islam, I'm speaking about a very specific uh, social movement uh, and very specific notions of uh, Islamic identity, which I would classify as extraordinarily reactionary, unable to recognize the other in terms of equality and the like, that these social movements, be it Muslim Brotherhood, the Iranian uh, revolutionary regime, although hypocritical at some level, uh, and other groups perceive the state as a problem as well, as part of Western colonialism and imperialism. So there's a disdain from the state by the social movement, which is gaining more and more strength on the ground in many societies, particularly in the Middle East. And at the same time, Western sort of neoliberal economic policies also have disdain for the state. And the vacuum, as we can see, is accelerating and being filled um, by rather, I, I find, uh, problematic uh, movements. So in a sense, this is the condition, or this is the context where I would view the reemergence and the threat of anti-Semitism. Um, I, I will argue, and I, I argue in, in my work, I'm sort of coming from this from a, a liberal, democratic, uh, critical, sociological uh, perspective, a human rights perspective, this is how I was educated, and in a sense, which is very important, that anti-Semitism, in a sense, is the, is the uh, canary in the coal mine. That anti-Semitism is not just a Jewish issue, and it's not just a problem of the Jews. Anti-Semitism is a disease, or a virus, and I'm using the term <coughs> consciously, that permeates, once it's unleashed, permeates society, and we can see in the aftermath of the Second World War, it wasn't just the Jews who were destroyed. That once this uh, disease is unleashed into society, other marginal groups become the victims of anti-Semitism or the ideology that emerges using anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism begins with Jews, but unfortunately never ever ends with Jews. And if um, people have read Nick Cohn recently in The, uh, in the Guardian, in London, he was arguing, I think very powerfully, that in a sense, anti-Semitism has been the, the distraction, if you will, that has blinded um, the academy and the media to a large extent. There's, there's shining examples of journalists and scholars that are dealing with these issues in a serious manner. But anti-Semitism played an important role in sort of creating a blind spot for the academy and for the media to really understand what was at stake in the so-called Arab world, that these, these, these states 
that we now see in the so-called Arab Spring that some people are, are calling it, these uh, revolutions or uprisings that are happening in the Middle East, that suddenly we see the true nature of the regimes, not just in terms of their anti-Semitism, but in the way that they were treating their own uh, citizens, if you can call them citizens, their own people. And that somehow we've, we've missed this. And I, I would argue strongly that this was part of um, anti-Semitism, that if you would criticize the regime's treatment of uh, Israel, or some of the rhetoric of its anti-Semitism and demonization of Israel, there was a, uh, it was very difficult to get these points across. And if you had the audacity to speak about anti-Semitism vis-a-vis the Middle East, you were often uh, labeled as being reactionary, as not being uh, a scholar, and the, and the list goes on and on. So it was very difficult, I, I would argue, for scholars to do work in many universities and many departments on the anti-Semitism that pervades uh, the Middle East. That there was this blind spot uh, for it. And certainly, uh, working and studying in the United Kingdom in particular, and my colleagues there, it was a very difficult um, space to occupy because once you start speaking about this, you were sort of dismissed as being opposed to peace or, or, or whatever. So it's, it's clear that anti-Semitism, once again, is becoming uh, a serious issue. From Daniel's pearls, uh, when he was forced to say that he is Jewish and he comes from a Zionist family before being decapitated, uh, by Pakistani terrorists, which the act, as you know, was, was videotaped by its uh, per perpetrators. Um, signs at peace rallies in the United States during the, uh, the, uh, the protests against the Iraq invasion, and other European cities in, the, in North America, which had posters of death to the Jews and, and posters at university dormitories and rhetoric of that, that Jews equal Nazis, or that Israel's a Nazi state, or Israel's an apartheid state, that this type of rhetoric has become uh, more mainstream. Um, widely, Palestinian, Egyptian, Syrian, Jordanian newspapers often contend that the Holocaust was a myth. Jordanian schools teach that the Torah is a, is a, is a sorry, that the Torah contends the Holocaust is a myth, which Jews exploit to gain world sympathy. Jordanian schools uh, teach that the Torah is, uh, is perverted and that Jews have only uh, their own evil practices to blame for the Holocaust. Egyptian television broadcast a, 40, a major 40-part series that ran through Ramadan entitled The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was depicted as truth. And the list goes on and on. So there's this emergence of a, a blatant form of anti-Semitism. Historically, European anti-Semitism has been all too well known as a phenomenon. It has impacted profoundly and is well documented. It seems throughout the ages, European anti-Semitism took on various forms uh, and, and was uh, took on various dominant forms dependent on the prevailing worldview. When religion was the dominant perspective of life, the Jews were perceived, perceived largely as the, as the killers of the Christian Messiah. The stubborn and unwilling, or perhaps blind by evil, 
to adopt the new authentic teachings of Christ and, and the new version of God. When religion was replaced by science as the new dominant forms or the new dominant perspective of seeing reality, Jews were racialized and ethnicized into biological groups of inferior others as compared to the Aryan or white racial groupings of Europe. Science and biology forms of identity were a significant aspect of modernity and, and, uh, and modernity paving the way for the colonial enterprise. When the Europeans introduced nationalism and the, and, and the identities that were bound up in this worldview, and were bound up in the, sort of the emerging nation states, the Jews soon found themselves as outsiders in lands that they've inhabited for generations. We now have entered into the so-called postmodern era of globalization. Postmodernists, particularly some European or Western intellectuals, speak of anti-essentialist and anti-nationalist identities and notions of hybridity, uh, as I discussed previously. Thus, Jews with strong group identity and Israel as a significant manifestation of a collective identity is again on the wrong side of this new emerging model of identity of Western intellectuals, mostly in the case of, of the political left. In a sense, these processes seems to be coming full circle. As Amos Oz powerfully wrote, the Israeli novelist, in, a, in an article which was published in Germany, he said, um, during the time of his father's generation, the graffitis on the wall leading up to the emergence of the Nazi regime were Jews out of Germany. <clears throat> Today, the graffiti in the same city streets, same cities, state Jews out of Palestine. This era of globalization is marked, as previously mentioned, with high levels of socio-economic and political marginalization throughout the world. Displacement that came about of centuries of colonialism, particularly in nations in the Middle East, combined with the failures of decolonization and the modern nation state to deliver on its promises to its citizens, the effects of structural adjustment and neoliberalism much of, much of the world, in particular the Middle East, has witnessed a dislocation on a profound level. It is in this context that notions of identities have changed, as well as notions of tolerance. And just, uh, very, I'll, I'll skip through some of this, but very um, quickly. From a human rights perspective, if Israel is an apartheid state, if Israel is a racist Nazi state, then from a human rights liberal Western perspective, the state has to be dismantled. Right? So if, if you believe in human rights and social democracy and the like, and this is an apartheid state, then morally it has to be dismantled. And I, I'll argue that this is the agenda of some in the boycott divestment uh, sanctions movement. Um, and this is taking place in a in a background or on a backdrop of uh, a complete or very profound uh, economic meltdown in the Middle East, the combined gross national product of all the Middle East uh, Muslim countries, 23 countries, is less than the GDP of Spain, just to get a sense. Levels of, um, levels of lit literacy rates and the like are very low. Um, the Pew Research Group does uh, polls on measuring notions of freedom based on uh, literacy, access to education, access to free media and the like, and over and over countries, many countries in the Middle East, perform the lowest on this scale. Um, very briefly, 
I, uh, Edward Kaplan and I wrote an article comparing classical forms of anti-Semitism to Israel bashing, and we interviewed 5,000 people, 500 people in 10 European countries, and we asked them a series of questions, not us, but a, a company, that offered, asked 500 people in 10 European countries with 5,000 uh, total uh, survey, questions about anti-Semitism, and questions about Israel bashing. And at one level, in the 10 European countries, levels of anti-Semitism were relatively low. I think we were both surprised by the level of anti-Semitism was lower than we thought. About 10 to 14% of the populations were, were classified as anti-Semitic based on the questions that they were asked. And then we asked them questions that we considered to be Israel bashing questions, that Israel is an apartheid state, that the Israeli government poisons Palestinian water, um, that uh, the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, purposely shoot children, which is very extreme questions. And at the one level, what we found, uh, levels of anti-Semitism were lower than we anticipated. At another level, which was shocking, is that the people who were considered to be anti-Semitic were, sorry, the people that were considered to be Israel bashers were 56% more likely, or 13 times more than the average, to be anti-Semitic in the classical sense. So there's a very strong correlation between those who ex excessively, if you will, or extremely bash Israel to classical forms of anti-Semitism. So as we said, if there was a product in the pharmacy that was 56% more likely to cause cancer, it would be removed immediately. And yet this type of disease, if you will, is prevalent uh, in some parts of the world and certainly some institutions. So this brings me to the Middle East. Uh, I'll try and go through this quickly and uh, have time for discussion and questions. What I would like to do is speak about the Muslim Brotherhood. And it's, um, I think it's important, I would argue, very important, if not urgent, that we learn the language of radicalism, not Islam, but radicalism, that there is a blind spot, an ideological blind spot, for engaging radical Islam. And um, what I have found through my research and through my dealings of being in the Middle East and the like, is that one thing you have to say about radical Islamists is that they're straightforward, they're open, they're honest, they're consistent. If you read what they're saying in their sermons, if you read their ideology, if you become familiar with the language, they don't hide anything. They're straight up, they're honest, they're upfront, and they're consistent about their worldview, and they're consistent with their what their agenda is. And what's important to realize is that most radical Islamic groups like the Muslim Brotherhood wants to impose Islamic law on societies and recreate an Islamic state or a caliphate, and it is impossible for the other to have self-determination, to be higher than a Muslim, in any capacity, especially on Islamic land. So from a religious perspective, from their ideological perspective, the recognition of the state of Israel in any form is uh, impossible. Because Jews or any other, any non-Muslim, any non-believing Muslim, cannot have self-determination over 
over land, especially Islamic land, and especially holy Islamic land, which much of Israel slash Palestine is to Muslims. So it's not uh, where the boundaries are drawn, if it's uh, 47 boundaries or 48 boundaries or 67 boundaries or 73 boundaries, even if Tel Aviv was going to be the nation state of the Jewish people where Jews will have self-determination and all citizens would be equal in Tel Aviv and the rest of the land would be uh, returned to Muslims, uh, that this would, would still be a problem because this is part of what, this space is where the caliphate is going to be, uh, is going to reemerge. The Muslim Brotherhood Society, so, so, so just to reiterate, basic Western notions of social justice, of citizenship, basic notions of citizenship, where all citizens are equal under one legal system, regardless of ethnicity, race, language, gender, sexual orientation, political ideology, or the like, is not a part of the worldview of radical Islam. Jews could be protected minorities like Christians, perhaps. They could be demis, as they were uh, previously. In other words, second-class citizens, or second-class, not citizens, but second-class, uh, with certain protections of the state. They'd be tolerated to live and to occupy certain socioeconomic and spatial space in society, but not to be equal citizens, and certainly not to have self-determination over space. The Muslim Brotherhood um, was formed in Islamia, Egypt in 1928 by Hassan al-Banai, a charismatic school teacher and Islamic preacher. Al-Banai formulated a politicized extremist form of Islam as a means of confronting Western moral and cultural influence among Egyptians. The Brotherhood's goal was to emulate all Western influences and to create an Islamic state, state in Egypt and ultimately in the world. Al-Banai sought to explain the malaise of Egyptian society in his time as being due to what he portrayed as the corrosive influence of Western culture. He accused government officials and other prominent members of Egyptian society as abandoning Islamic law and principles and behaving in an immoral fashion due to Western influence. The remedy, he insisted, was a revival and the reestablishment of the Islamic State that would, that would return Muslims to the pinnacle of their military, historical, and cultural glory. He, he pointed to the caliphate, the historical Islamic empire, and the most celebrated period of Islamic history as the temple of his vision of an Islamic State. In 1947, he wrote a letter to King Farouk entitled Towards the Light. Al-Banai asserted that the only way to return to the days of glory was to establish Sharia law, Islamic law, as a source for governance, as well as for societal and personal behaviors. And this is still the main teachings of the, of the Brotherhood. Banai preached a return to the Prophet Muhammad's strategies during the early days of Islam in the 7th century, which strongly emphasized that each Muslim's personal ob obligation to be carried out as jihad, which he defined as a physical war. So again, they are straight, they are clear, they are honest. It's we who do not speak their language uh, that tries to perhaps tailor it to our worldview. In, 19, in the 1930s, entitled, a, a, a tract that he wrote entitled Jihad, Al-Banani writes, and I quote, 
Jihad is the obligation from Allah on every Muslim and cannot be ignored or evaded. Allah has spread great importance to jihad and has made the reward of, this, of the martyr and the fighters in his way a splendid one. Only those who have acted similarly and those who have modeled themselves upon the martyrs and their performance of jihad can join them in his reward, God's reward. Furthermore, Allah has specifically honored the mujahideen, those who fight for jihad, with certain exponential qualities, both spiritual and practical, to benefit them in the world to come. Their pure blood is a symbol of victory in this world and marked by the success of ferocity for the ferocity in the world to come. Drawing, there was a quote, drawing a parallel between the times of the Prophet Muhammad and the present, Al-Banai portrayed non-Muslims as idol worshippers and placed a central focus on spearheading, uh, I'm sorry, on spreading Islam and fighting what he determined, what he termed the enemies of Islam. The purpose of jihad, he asserted, was not the personal glory or gain of Muslims, Rather, jihad is used to safeguard the mission of, spirit of spreading Islam. This would guarantee peace and the means of implementing the supreme message. This is the responsibility which the Muslims bear, this message guiding mankind to truth and justice. So in other words, according to the Brotherhood, it's incumbent upon every Muslim to engage in jihad, and jihad not in the spiritual sense, but jihad in the physical. What's also very important, and I, I don't want to take too much more time on this, is that um, the portrayal of the Jews by the Muslim Brotherhood, and, and, and more and more in the Middle East, certainly in the Iranian Revolutionary Regime, which controls Hamas, which controls Hezbollah, and now in the Muslim Brotherhood as it's emerging as a powerful force on the ground, that they see the Jews based on the protocols of the elders themselves. <coughs> So people like uh, Bassam Tibi, who was a scholar here with us, Jeffrey Herf, Matthias Kunzel, show how European anti-Semitism, that they make the argument, which I, I agree with them, that anti-Semitism is European and inherently genocidal. Anti-Semitism did not exist in Arab countries until relatively recently. It was Judeophobia, there was discrimination against Jews in, in Muslim lands, there were periods in which Jews were marginalized, they couldn't occupy certain territories, and there were slaughters in Muslim-Jewish relations. But not anti-Semitism as being distinct from Judeophobia or discrimination against Jews, because anti-Semitism, according to Tibi and Jeffrey Herf and uh, um, uh, um, Wistrich, Robert Wistrich, that anti-Semitism has inherently a genocidal uh, tendency and it was European specific to, to the European context. But through colonialism and through missionary work in the Middle East uh, and through the alliance which Jeffrey Herf and Consul and others write about how the Nazis uh, worked with and people in the Ba'ath Party, secular and nationalists in the Ba'ath Parties of Syria, of Iraq and other, and other places and also worked with the Mufti in Jerusalem and other religious leaders in the Middle East that there was a, an appetite, if you will, for anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism had been introduced into the Middle East, into places like Syria, Jordan, what is now Lebanon, Palestine, Egypt, uh, and other places through the interaction with Western colonial and religious 
institutions. So anti-Semitism is there. What's amazing, and I won't go into details, but if you read the Hamas Charter, has, have people read the Hamas Charter here? If you read the Hamas Charter, the amazing thing to me is, and here is a radical Islamist social movement that wants to rid all of Palestine, all of the Islamic land, uh, from infidels, from communists, from Jews and, uh, and the like, and Christians and other uh, you know, culturally corrupt or morally corrupt uh, entities, and, and reestablish an Islamic caliphate or an Islamic golden age. And the covenant, their, their charter, their constitution, is unbelievable in the sense that it uses as the uh, theme that runs through the entire um, document the protocols of the elders of Zion. So here is a, a group claiming to want to rid itself of uh, Western evil and Jewish uh, influences, and it's using the most pernicious form of European anti-Semitism as the theme of its constitution. Um, so the rhetoric of the protocols, seeing Jews, seeing Israelis, seeing Zionists in that light is becoming very powerful, particularly in Egypt and in the Iranian country. I'm going to show you two videos. Facebook uh, group, the, the young 
Facebook educated uh, global uh, people who are fighting for change and, and risk their lives to be at the forefront of the struggle. They were not allowed to, to appear on the stage with Al-Qaeda. The Muslim Brotherhood, the thugs on the stage removed everybody from the stage and he preached.
uh, footholds in society as is becoming evident. And that we have to understand the ideology and the worldview, and then once we understand and engage it and read about it and study it, then we can argue, then we can debate. But I find very often that people aren't even really engaged and really understand the worldview and the, and of this uh, social movement. On a final note, I think that if you remember, the Bush administration put a lot of pressure on the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government to allow free elections to take place. The Israelis and the PA, the Fatah, didn't want it to happen because they were worried about uh, the results. And obviously, democracy, respect of the other, uh, equality under one legal system, there's a lot of institutions and things that need to be created to, to have a true democracy or to begin the creation of a true democracy. And it's not just elections. Iran has elections, or, you know, autocratic, reactionary, non-democratic societies have elections. Egypt had many elections, but they weren't democratic. And I hope that scholars, policymakers will, when it comes to the Egyptian context, it's not just about a free election. We really have to create institutions that guarantee uh, women, uh, religious minorities, <coughs> gay people, Muslims with different identity than uh, Kavadari, to be free and equal in Egypt and in other places. Um, and that we see with, uh, with Hamas today, uh, you can't even play music at weddings, women can't shop alone without being escorted by a male adult, that the, the repression of women uh, is becoming severe. And as Ruth Weiss often said, you know, classical anti-Semitism was always like the, uh, the shifting of the hands of the puppeteer. The puppeteer would say, look at the Jews. Now we say, look at the Israelis. And over here, the people's rights and dignity is being controlled by uh, often reactionary regimes and societies. And I would say that, that Israel is not um, beyond criticism. Israel has a lot of contradictions and problems and policies that I don't agree with, and I'm sure many in this room don't agree with, and we should feel free to criticize any aspect of Israeli society, but to demonize Israel and to see Israel or the settlements as the problem of the Middle East, that somehow magically uh, the world will be a, a better place, to me is anti-Semitic, I'll explain why. When religion was the way, with the dominant way of seeing the world, and the anti-Semitism of that time was that if, if the Jews would only accept Christ, the world would be saved. And this is the genocidal nature of anti-Semitism. When the world viewed people through race and ethnicity and biological categories, people believed that if only the Jewish race would be removed from the nation or from the uh, the blood of the Aryan race, that the race or the nation would be saved. And there are people today irrationally saying that if only the settlements would go away, then the world would be saved. Forget the Israelis and the Palestinians, the world would be saved. And this is anti-Semitism. Now, and I'm, not, I'm not justifying uh, any of the settlements. I'm just saying that the bashing of Israel and thinking that somehow if this process would be fixed between the Israelis and the Palestinians, that the whole world would be saved, this to me is anti-Semitism. And we have to, in my mind, look at these issues very rationally and very clearly, and, and really, I think, support moderate Palestinians, moderate Egyptians, and to create spaces for democratic institutions to be created, and, and that there should be um, 
a solution for Israelis and Palestinians. Palestinians should live in dignity and should have uh, the right to self-determination, in my view, for whatever it's worth. But to bash Israel or to look at the Jews and the Israelis when everything is crumbling under our feet is the result of anti-Semitism. And it, it's very dangerous, not just for the Jews, but for women, for moderate Muslims, and for people who care about democracy. So I'll end on that note, and I'll be happy to take questions or criticism. I'm concerned that we not look at the canary in the mine as the main actor on the stage. It might be important to me as a Jew, but there's a real struggle going on against Western civilization that has to be dealt with. And by talking about anti-Semitism, we fail to bring in the idea of Hannah Arendt and the origins of totalitarianism the nation-state as a multi-ethnic, multi-identity area, we fail to recognize essentially that Islam is submission. And it isn't just submission to, uh, to Allah, but it's submission of all the people because this is the religious imperative. So the question I'm raising is this. Are we losing sight of the Huntington view of the clash of civilizations that is really taking place by just focusing on anti-Semitism, which is one dimension of this clash. Okay, so first I would say that, I, I, again, as I said at the beginning, I don't see Islam as the problem. I see Islamism, or the sort of reactionary social movement of radical Islam, or radical political Islam is the problem. I don't think Islam is necessarily flawed. I think we have to realize that there's over one and a half billion Muslims in the world. There's Muslims from Los Angeles to Sudan to literally all over the world. There's different cultural uh, impacts on various forms of Islam. Some Islam is much more open than others. And there are tendencies in Islam to be open and accepting of the other. And there's been a tradition of that in, the, in Islamic teachings and in Islamic societies rooted in history. So I, I can't join you in lumping 1.5 billion people and an entire cultural religion into this category or this sort of uh, box. I think it's, it's, it's wrong and problematic. There are Egyptians, there are Palestinians, there are uh, people struggling to create democratic <coughs> institutions in society and to make peace with Israelis or Coptics or, or others in, in their midst. Uh, there are people on a philosophical, religious level deeply engaged in, in, in living with and working with and recognizing the teachings of other cultures and other religions, so I don't buy the Huntington view. But um, given the structural inequalities in, in the global economy, within societies and among societies, um, this is the ground that's fertile to to have these type of social movements uh, come and fill the vacuum. And I think that at a global level, there's people like Lloyd Axworthy in the Canadian government who for years was saying, for example, that every financial transaction that happens in this new global economy between banks and corporations, there should be a small tax placed on them, a global tax, and with this fund to create schools and to help build infrastructure in societies and help to create uh, democratic institutions and, and, and cultures. So, so I think the crisis in the global, global sort of neoliberal model that we're in, using now, 
is, is this sowing the seeds of uh, great disparities and is creating the terrain for a reactionary movement to come to power. And I, I think it's possible to create policies and perspectives to, to create more open and progressive uh, spaces. I was surprised that you omitted Saudi Arabia and its role in spreading the Wahhabi version of Islam. You talked about that tax that might be taken. Billions of dollars spent by Saudi Arabia in the last 50 years is one of the greatest accomplishments in my mind of the manipulation of world public opinion. Uh, how did it get to have Israel, this little country, one might say a, a pimple on the backside of world politics, such a focus in schools ranging from Indonesia to Sudan, subsidized by the Saudis. So they have played a tremendous role worldwide spread of this new anti-Semitism among Arabs and others, including in the West, because of, again, part of this masterpiece of uh, propaganda is that it spread so successfully through uh, Western intellectuals uh, in England, as you know, and Canada too, and, and, uh, and the United States. That's a very good point. I had a whole section that I was going to deal with Wahhabism and Iran. I did some research on Iran, but the time was going too quickly. So I, I completely agree. And I think Saudi Arabia and some of the Gulf states, and so this Wahhabi form of radical Islam, uh, as you were saying, has played an important role in influencing, uh, in, for example, institutions of higher education, the, the amount of funding in Middle East studies programs by uh, people with this worldview is staggering. I think, uh, to a large extent, uh, some Middle East studies departments have emerged as the sort of on the cutting edge of so-called uh, Western discourse vis-a-vis -vis Israel and the demonization of Israel. And yeah, I, I, I think there should be a serious research project on the influence of Saudi money on the academy, for example. And it's uh, it's staggering. Yeah, I uh, first want to preface my question by saying I think your analysis of the Middle East is spot on and its value cannot be overstated, uh, things that are missed in the day-to-day -day press. Uh, I appreciate that very much. Um, my question goes to the causation analysis uh, and to frame it, the idea that the neoliberal or democratic capitalism, that trend is driving a lot of modern anti-Semitisms. When I look back at the last 70 years, it seems to me that where anti-Semitisms have been the strongest and most developed have been in the places most disconnected from a sort of democratic capitalist model. Nazi Germany, a very autarkic, imperialist slave labor economy. The Soviet Union and its predecessor under the Tsars, again, a very imperialistic, quasi-slave labor economy. And today, the Arabic world, which is probably the most disconnected of most places in the world from the democratic capitalist uh, system. I look in the United States, which is held up as an exemplar, whether people agree or disagree with it, of that system, and we're probably the least anti-Semitic society in human history, thank goodness. Um, is it not possible, therefore, Professor, that 
the neoliberal system may be less a driver of anti-Semitism than just, it's just an ideology that feeds off resentments, that feeds off power plays, and that is manipulated by leaders around the world who choose to use it for their own ends. That's a good question. So to start off, I better say I'm not a professor, this is executive director of the center. Um, now I think you asked a good question. I think my point would be that in a global capitalist system, Inherent in this is speeding um, up or an exacerbation of dislocation and marginalization. And it's, um, in a sense, those who were specifically, I think the Middle East points to, to what I was arguing conceptually in a very powerful way. Because the more, the more people are dispossessed, the more this sort of the idea of the modern nation state was going to be the mechanism which delivered sort of socioeconomic and cultural goods for the future of Egyptian and the future generations, as this model crumbles, it's becoming increasingly clear that it's not going to deliver the goods. As people become more marginalized and I would say less hopeful and even engaged in despair for you know, the level of poverty, of malnutrition, of people living on a dollar a day, whatever, is staggering. So as these people sort of drop out of the, the system or drop out of the markets, they're not touched by the state, and they're not touched in a positive way by the markets, this provides the terrain or this provides the space for reactionary social movements to emerge. And I would say in much the same way as perhaps the Germans uh, used anti-Semitism as they marched into Eastern Europe. It was uh, as the socialism of fools, if you will. And so, so your point that the United States is less anti-Semitic than other parts of the world, especially those that are sort of on the margins of the world economy, the global world economy actually points to exactly what I was trying to highlight. So once people are integrated more fully into the economy, into the system, they, there's less uh, space, if you will, for sort of a reactionary social movement to emerge. And the selling of the socialism, you know, the socialism as fools becomes, uh, becomes a driving force in many of these social movements. They're using anti-Semitism in the classic way to rise to power. So, um, so first you and then well, I'd like to know, are there, is there any Arab country, you know, even throwing Muslim countries like Indonesia and Iran, that treats their Christian and Jewish citizens as equal citizens? And I'm aware of Well, then you think about it. 1.5 billion so, uh, Muslims. It's very noble, but uh, it doesn't clear out. Okay, I take your point. <laughs> I wanted to follow up on uh, my neighbor here. I had a problem too in linking the globalization story to the anti-Semitism story. Uh, for one thing, globalization is not something you can hold up. It's, it's there. It's inevitable. The question is, does it lead to the kind of consequences that you inevitably, that you predict? Okay. Uh, the the uh, adjustment uh, issues that you talk about, uh, structural adjustment, structural adjustment, uh, that already is under attack and being revised. Uh, because there is, the world is not flat, uh, uh, in spite of books that have been written in that vein. It's very differentiated. 
and there's an increasing realization uh, of that fact. Uh, and in fact, the uh, most of the um, current policies by donor countries as well as by others uh, is that uh, you can have increased social justice. In fact, you mentioned people are poor, but the poverty rate is going down in developing countries. I'm not saying it's a perfect world. The income distribution is getting worse, but poverty is declining everywhere. Uh, maybe not fast enough, but it's declining. So your argument that globalization leads to uh, dissatisfaction and therefore breeding ground for uh, anti-Israel uh, anti or anti-Semitic movements uh, doesn't hold up in my opinion. I have some questions about your second part. Uh, I think that there are other experts besides yourself who don't believe that the uh, Muslim Brotherhood is monolithic as you predicted. This guy is a spokesperson in two million people. It's something to worry about. But I think there are differences among uh, major members of the Muslim Brotherhood who don't agree with that, uh, including in, in Egypt. I'm not willing to predict the outcome of what's going to happen in Egypt, uh, but I don't think it's inevitable uh, the way you predicted. Thanks for your question. Could, do you know of one sort of branch of the Muslim Brotherhood that would reject anti-Semitism and, and, and promote equal citizenship for every Egyptian? Yeah, I just had a, a discussion at the Council of Foreign Relations. There are a couple of people talking about that subject, and they're specialists. I'm not. They said that there are different shades within the Muslim Brotherhood. And they named the mosque and the school of thought and the philosophers and the, the religious leaders who are leading that? Well, I think that it's, the, it's a question of the youth movement in places like Egypt who don't necessarily adhere to the extreme versions of the Muslim Brotherhood. The older folks, I agree. Well, I, I hope deeply that, that they're right and I'm wrong. Um, this, the exact same thing was said about Hamas, that Hamas was not monolithic, and once they have rule over Gaza, that they were going to become responsible uh, uh, members of the international community and the like. And I think uh, the acceleration of the Islamicization of Gaza is well documented and the complete rejection of the self-determination of the other in any form is consistently clear. I, I hope there'll be some sort of Islamic uh, element in the social, the social movement that is more open, but I, I read, I've never seen any substantial evidence of it. I hope I'm missing something, but I, I haven't seen it, and I, I haven't seen it in the Egyptian context. I'm not an expert on Egyptian society, and I don't speak Arabic, so I'm limited, but the people that I'm reading and who are engaged uh, are unaware of that as well. So I hope the Council of Foreign Relations is accurate this time, but I think we have to remember the lesson of, of the elections in, in Gaza and, and the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority and how uh, it's been a failure in my view. We have to remember I think the 1979 revolution in Iran, how it was a mass movement which really had intellectuals and liberals and uh, all elements of society behind the movement, perhaps like Egypt, and we all know how that failed and worked out. And I think Mr. Albaradai, who used to be a guest here at Yale University, 
I heard him speak a few years ago, and it's to me, it's very reminiscent of the 1978-79 uh, Iranian context. You have this kind of westernized or uh, person with credibility in the West with all sorts of uh, appointments and uh, um, experience that he's going to become the moderate voice of the Brotherhood. And what happens if, if he becomes the moderate voice, what will happen to him uh, six months, 18 months down the road? Will, they, will these characters push him out and uh, take, take over? I don't know. Uh, and certainly there, there, there is a small group of um, educated, West, uh, westernized in a general sense, um, kind of urban, middle class, uh, upwardly mobile, educated people who are part of the this revolution in Egypt, um, but it would appear that they're being marginalized. They had a, they called for an, a, a demonstration probably about three or four weeks ago, and they had about a thousand people turn up. So, I hope, um, I hope I'm wrong. In terms of globalization, I don't think the globalization that I'm speaking about is, is inevitable. There was a policy shift. Uh, a substantial policy shift in the 70s and 80s, especially an accelerated under Thatcher and Reagan and sort of uh, that form of globalization, which instituted a very specific form of uh, social policies, uh, advocated social policies within nations, within the developing world, and within the developed world. And so I would argue that the globalization that we're experiencing is very specific. It's not inevitable. <coughs> and hopefully there'll be another model that will come around and maybe it's beginning to because you know more about this than I do that will usher in uh, more equitable development but I think as long as the disparities exist as they do and I, I'm not so sure that poverty is decreasing there are other, other studies and reports that say the opposite um, but this is your field so I won't uh, argue on that level but there's certainly enough poverty in the world to go around uh, hopefully the trends are improving but this dislocation, I think, is a cause for concern. And I was recently, well, almost a year ago in South Africa, uh, teaching as a visiting scholar at, at, at Cape Town University, and I was active in the anti-apartheid movement. And I went around to uh, the former squatter camps and townships that I, I was in in the, in the early 90s, and the dislocation in South Africa is tremendous, and this is really becoming a very strong pressure on the sort of democratic state. South Africa is an interesting case study where neoliberal economic development models are meeting with some success, but there's also a huge uh, space where the market forces and the, the, the development projects are not really having uh, a reach. No, my main point is that globalization does not mean neoliberalism. That I agree. May I, may I just add, uh, I mean, it looks uh, in my view that uh, globalization is the kind of uh, modern way of uh, uh, imperialism. It's kind of, uh, you know, um, an economical imperialism, if you wish, uh, by uh, maybe not by uh, countries as much as by uh, corporates. And uh, you don't see that globalization uh, moves across uh, continents, uh, you know, uh, a better uh, level of education or health or, uh, you know, human rights, uh, 
it is uh, very much geared toward you know uh, economy making profit uh, even the com the communication uh, systems that uh, you know follow are there because they are needed for economical reasons and you see how China that uh, very much uh, you know has uh, you know uh, uh, let's say, had benefited a lot and still uh, from the globalization, when it came to the point that uh, they felt, the, the, the government there, that their existence might uh, be at risk because, uh, you know, the movement that took place in the Middle East might also hit their uh, yard. Immediately they, uh, you know, started to uh, limit the internet, the communication, they go out journalists, and uh, I think globalization is very much limited. It's, 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 uh, it's a kind of a facade that we're looking at what's going on in modern times, thinking that, you know, the whole world became small, but it's only for certain people. I think, you know, there, there are still, I, you know, I don't think it's news for anyone, uh, in Africa and in other places, very poor communities that uh, didn't see a syringe or any anything like uh, Western medicine ever. And uh, corporates send, you know, forces there to dig for diamonds, uh, you know, whatever they can find. And so this is what uh, my take on it. It's not a question. I just wanted to share a brief and rather pessimistic comment uh, about this, what you said um, about the involvement of academics and scholars in the whole debate on Middle and the regimes and Israel as well. Well, um, about a month ago, uh, I attended a lecture just the next building, Prospect 115 Prospect Street, Jackson's Institute of International Relations. And there was a lady speaking, um, visiting, uh, visiting professor, visiting scholar. And uh, actually, what she said, an expert, sorry, an expert on Middle and Iran, especially. Uh, what she said and what shocked me absolutely was, uh, for example, that human rights record of Iran and stoning of women is a kind of internal affair of this country, and that we should actually respect their culture and their specific attitude towards human rights and that US and Israel especially are demonizing Iran and other countries, Middle countries and not the other way like what for me was obvious that Israel is being demonized so just such a reflection that we are now here talking about all those troubling things and next building uh, something completely different, different perspective um, yeah so. I wonder whether that's the strength of Yale, there's different perspectives that articulated, but just a, as a footnote, and uh, this person in question, actually, she organized a, a seminar for Mr. Ahmadinejad at the United Nations in uh, September during the General Assembly. She brought Yale students to meet Mr. Ahmadinejad, and she's literally being paid by the regime to say such things. Her and her husband literally work for the regime. So I don't think we, I would argue take what she said more seriously. Yeah, my point is that she's a visiting scholar. Yeah. She's based at Yale University, and like 70 people were listening. And 
lack of a monolithic, you know, all these groups, even in the Syrian regime, where you see a few low-level uh, Ba'ath Party members resigning locally, this and that, you know, you know uh, there's the monolithism uh, can, can be an illusion sometimes. We don't see the Soviet Union about to crumble. We don't see the Soviet Chinese block uh, at war with each other. You know, historically we've been blind to lots of uh, crumbling of these kind of so-called monolithic, and I think that we should be optimistic that uh, the, the, in the communication uh, universe that we've entered uh, will move things in a positive direction towards understanding over time. So let me, I'll, I'll ask you a question. Um, there's an assumption that, that globalization brings democracy and democracy brings positive change. And we know and that's not always the case. Right? Neoliberal uh, forms of globalization are supposed to bring modernity and positive change and democracy. We know that doesn't always happen. Why do people think that a computer, uh, a Facebook, is inherently something uh, positive? In a sense, it's a tool, like a telephone, like anything else that you can communicate. So yes, we can communicate, and hopefully good, uh, processes of good actors can communicate beautiful ideas and we can share and, and that is going on. There is a sharing of uh, technology and medicine and poetry and culture and at a very positive level, that's happening. But at the same time, the people who are organizing uh, the Muslim Brotherhood are also very effectively using technology and telecommunications and internet and Facebook to do exactly what they're doing. So it's I don't think that the technology is necessarily the positive thing. Necessarily. It could be used for good, it could be used for bad, like any other, I guess, form of technology. Well, then, just a real quick rejoinder would be that uh, it's our job as Americans in this society, or Israelis in their society, or people in all different liberal democratic societies of different stripes, it's our imperative to set a desirable example so that over time, as people look around at what's going on, on their internet, from Egypt, from Tunisia, wherever they want to look at it from, they say, hey, I want to be more like that. You know, and that can take some time to set an example. It might be considered naive, but I think at the same time, in the, in the long run, it's the only thing people will truly believe in and, and uh, you know, that will actually motivate people. Any other points or comments or questions? No? Okay, so first, I just wanted yeah. to thank you for conducting these sessions uh, for, the, for the year and bringing a lot of issues. Thank you very much. And also, again, to acknowledge Bill Prusoff's uh, memory. Without him, none of this would have been possible. So glad the Prusoffs are here and you're all here. And this is the, also the end of our semester. This is the last lecture. So. I wish you all a good summer and uh, hopefully we'll be back here in September. Uh, thank you for coming. Just a small reception of wine and cheese. Please help.